Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Professor Bronwyn Hayward. Bronwyn is an internationally recognised sustainability and climate change advocate. Her day job is as a professor at the University of Canterbury in the Department of Political Science and International Relations. Bronwyn is also part of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. She's passionate about sustainability, climate, youth and democracy and has written two critically acclaimed books, one about climate politics and the other about children's citizenship and the environment. In 2021, Bronwyn was made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit in recognition of her outstanding work. And in 2022, she was chosen as the Supreme Winner in the Women of Influence Awards. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about Bronwyn and her career journey today. Kia ora Bronwyn and thank you for joining me. Kia ora Anna, thanks for having me. Lovely. Well, the first question I'd love to ask you is when you were a child or you know, even as you were growing up, perhaps into your teenage years, what careers were you thinking about or even dreaming about? Well, nothing to do with the environment, although the environment was part of our childhood. My father was a hydrologist and then worked in resource management. And so we joked that I was about 11 before I realised that normal families didn't go away in the pouring rain uh, while their father and his colleagues were measuring floods in the high country. And we sort of would muck around in the weekend and mum would be relieved of the kids. We'd go with him and spend a lot of time outdoors just... Yeah, often in huge flood events, to be honest. But I think I was really interested, actually, when I was a child, I wanted to be a puppeteer for the Muppets, which had just become a massive television event. And I've always had a love of communication and, and children's television. And so for a while, actually, I did work in drama and I worked in children's television at the beginning and then went to Lincoln University and began working in sort of the crossover between environmental policy and also the design work for visitor centres and museums and national parks. And that's kind of how I started at the really beginning. Before I did my PhD, I worked at Lincoln thinking about the ways in which we communicate with the public and tell stories about places that we love. Mm, how interesting. And as you say, that combination of communication and alongside the environment, although as you said, the places that we love. Super interesting. And how was it? I mean, tell me a bit about those first few years of your career. What were some of the highlights, the good bits, but also some of the challenges? Well, I think, I, like I was interested, you sent a message before to think about kind of some of the first jobs mm. that we did. And my very first job was cleaning the post office, actually. But I also worked for the ZB Radio Network, doing their kind of lost dog ads and their music stations and worked picking fruit. And I think as a teenager and then as a student, I began working for the Forerunner for Doc, which was Lands and Survey, doing guided tours and working with the public. And I think 
What was really interesting to me was it was enormously confidence building to be able to get some of that original work just myself, to just sort of, not because anybody knew me or I knew anyone, but to just apply and go along and then work for a team of adults. And I think, I think looking back on it, working with people who are not like yourself and who are older than you, but who take you seriously and mentor you about how work happens is enormously good. And I'm incredibly grateful, actually, because I also benefited from those initial task force green jobs that they had to encourage students to think about working in the environment. So as I started to study, I worked on surveys about health and safety issues for rafting in the summer, or I did projects about development of national parks or tourism opportunities. And all of that got me interested in thinking about applied community problems. So when a job came up at Lincoln... I had applied and actually I nearly didn't get it because my father was working there and I'd popped in and left the job application on the kitchen bench when I'd called in to see home and I think he thought it was something he'd accidentally brought home and threw it out. You know? So for a little while I wasn't sure about working at Lincoln in an environment where my father was working in a related department, particularly because I'd enjoyed kind of the independence of working completely alone. But the thing that I loved about Lincoln was that it was such a diverse community. So you were working with students who'd come from farming and agricultural backgrounds, students that had very strong environmental issues. It was also the beginning of the Mataronga Māori, Māori knowledge programs. And I felt like the debates and the projects were very practical and very real. And they crossed a lot of political divides. And I really enjoyed that. Then I went back to my first love of television when our children were little and I worked more as a consultant for children's television programs and design just part-time but I hadn't kind of thrown the interest in research and wanting to do a PhD for myself so I did actually undertake a PhD it was a terrible timing I did it when I was pregnant with our first We've got two now adult children, but when I was pregnant with our daughter, uh, I began it. And I remember that some of the women in the maths department at Lincoln had heard that I'd begun this PhD and they were falling about laughing about how hard it was going to be. And in a way it was hard, but the other part of it was that doing a PhD with very young children meant that there was something that I was doing for myself as well as raising the the children but I didn't know any other women who were actually doing that and I was uh, working part-time both at Lincoln and I'd started picking up some part-time work later at Canterbury and still doing a bit of work for TV so I was kind of working at the same time self-employed and trying to write and it was actually the Secretary of State an interview with the Secretary of State from the US Madeleine Albright and someone had said to her how did you do your PhD while you were working and had children and she said well I just had to get up really early in the mornings and work for an hour and a half to two hours wherever I could get a small patch of time that was to myself and that's what I did and it sounds ridiculous and it was, was so sad but I literally didn't know any other women doing this and that kind of gave me the recipe for how to survive it. And I just did that. I spent an hour or two hours a day early in the morning just for myself writing and basically did the PhD that way. And I think in retrospect, it was very hard doing so much when the children were little. But 
I don't regret it. And the kids, you know, I joked that they'd probably be in therapy forever. They had a fantastically engaged father as well. But he was also working full time and in a manufacturing engineering company that wasn't used to giving any time off for men. So it was hard, but the kids were saying, well, you know, at least you were spending your whole life worrying about us and playing tennis, which is, of course, no one really is like that. But it was nice that as young adults now, they understand why I was doing that. Mm, I'm sure they do. And I think, as you said, maybe for yourself, you didn't have any role models at that time about how it might work. But great now that, you know, even in you sharing this story, that provides a role model for others who are trying to do something for themselves as well as work to bring in some money as well as look after a family because that's what many of us do I think and the more we talk about it talk about the fact that it's not easy but it is possible I think the better Mm, nice and what then you you sort of said you'd had a growing perhaps interest in the environment through your work and through your time there I guess what's helped to prompt that deepening interest in the climate well actually having a childhood that was in the outdoors and always being interested in the environment it was kind of the inevitable issue that I was going to start thinking about. But it was very hard in political science because while I was interested in politics, political science wasn't interested in climate or the environment. And in fact, climate change wasn't even a key word that the journals used until 2008, which is quite incredible when you think about it now. And I became quite interested and concerned about what this would mean for the future for children. And of course, children and children don't vote, according to political scientists. So why would you be remotely interested in in studying children as well? So they were they were deeply unpopular topics to be working on and unfashionable. And I was interested in how we make decisions through discussion and listening across our differences, which also at the time hadn't been particularly fashionable. And it was pretty difficult actually when I first started back at the university I started in a part-time role as a contract lecturer which a lot of women still do. It's very hard to break into universities we've got very few permanent jobs at the moment which is an ongoing problem. I was just lucky that I was in a role where I was able to apply for a job that became permanent but I think I would have really struggled if it wasn't that the university was going through a difficult period financially and it was trying to find ways in which it could reduce some of its staffing needs. So I applied to take three years unpaid leave and I got a very small grant and I went to work in a research institute in the United Kingdom and my husband had an exchange with his firm which had a head office in the UK and he has a British passport. He was a Kiwi, but he was born in Britain. His parents were working there. And so we both went kind of on a family adventure with young children. And that transformed my life and my career, actually, because I was working in two teams. I was working with the University of East Anglia and their climate unit, but I was also working with um, the new economics thinking of Tim Jackson in the Sustainable Prosperity Group, it became at Surrey. And... They were both in the fast lane of how research is done in teams in very collaborative ways, thinking about really new ideas. And it was quite a euphoric period. And all of a sudden, I wasn't being treated as somebody who'd come back into academia as a mum, but somebody who had skills to offer. And also that sense of anything's possible. At the time that we were there, 
I worked with the United Nations on a couple of major projects following children and young adults growing up around the world. Tim Jackson wrote a book on prosperity without growth that just became an absolute stellar uh, economic work. But I was interested that in promoting and talking and using those ideas, he and his team were using communication skills, art, all the kinds of things that I had sort of loved were being brought together. And it wasn't something odd. It was something that was important to celebrate. So it was three became four really wonderful years that kick-started my career. And I think otherwise I just would not have been able to come back into New Zealand and participate if I hadn't got that first seed-funded grant and we hadn't had the opportunity to leave and go away for a while and kind of break out of the systems that are pretty difficult still here for women and incredibly difficult for Māori and Pacific women and, and men in universities in New Zealand. Fewer than 4%, just almost 5% of university staff are Māori and only about 1% are Pacifica. There's an enormous number of people who've hung on to their work roles for a very long time. Yeah, it is a very, very difficult environment to break into. And so I think sometimes going out and working somewhere else is almost the best thing to do in that situation. Mm, as you said, it's helped you to kickstart or supercharge your career, but also I'm sure brought a huge amount of learning and perspective into your work from that international environment and from learning from other thought leaders around the world that then you were able to bring back home. Yes, and definitely, but also just the confidence that actually being creative and doing the things that you're passionate about is okay. You know, I think we can, especially in universities, I think we can be very critical of emotion and the creative arts when you're not working actually in the creative arts if you're in a science discipline thinking oh that's a little bit touchy-feely or that's not really quite a serious approach to science whereas watching that interdisciplinary skill really taking off internationally it I mean it's it's now much stronger here but it's still yeah there's still quite a resistance I would have to say Mm, and I think with a topic like the environment or climate change, and particularly when it involves trying to bring young people more into that discussion as well, then you know you sort of need to get it out of the academic halls and into actually kind of plain language or thinking about how you communicate that in an engaging way. Totally. Mm. And also think about the practical problems that people are facing. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's so interesting to hear that actually, you know, not all that long ago that climate change didn't feature as part of the kind of political science study or the thought of uh, what that means for future generations. And, you know, the difference now with that somebody like Greta Thunberg has brought through and really got people thinking about youth and, the, you know, the school strike for climate. Such a shifting, yeah, times have shifted so quickly. Yes, they really have. And I think that was one of the things that I love and still love about my work actually is being able to work with teams of people globally who are dealing with local problems following particularly following issues that affect children and young people we've got a couple of big projects running following children and young people growing up in cities around the world and just learning from how others are tackling those issues but also hearing the kind of common concerns that come across different cultures different languages different political systems there's still very similar kinds of challenges and very similar experiences for children and adolescents and that's enormously rewarding and interesting and trying to it's a little bit like watching the epidemiologists learn from each other during COVID 
I wish that we had been doing a bit more learning from each other about how to tackle climate and also how to tackle inequality. Mm. Because I think there's a lot to be learned from just looking at how other people are dealing with similar problems. Mm, and of course, climate and inequality uh, are often also linked. And I think there was a piece that was written, a profile of you recently, where you talked about the fact that actually those who are going to be most impacted by climate change are those who might already be struggling or who are already impacted by inequality. Totally. And we often don't think about the fact that Investing in social well-being is, and things like having good education systems, having a good social net is really an important way of adapting to a changing climate because when your job and your house and your whole livelihood or your community is completely disrupted in a disaster, those are the things that protect and help hold you together as well as your community networks. So I suppose... The only thing I would say is that my career took a bit of a detour from climate when we had the major earthquakes in Christchurch. And we literally came back from England on the day of the earthquakes uh, in 2011. And because we hadn't actually been on the ground when they hit, we were in the air coming back on a plane. Uh, when we arrived home, everyone was so traumatised and we didn't have that quite same shock that people were in having just experienced so much trauma. And we had about a week and a half to stay with one of my sisters who lived out of town and kind of regroup and it meant that it was a real privilege to be able to help work in a community and watch the things like the student volunteer army who were some of our students and who were students that had also come out of theatre music theatre school like one, one of the things that's not well known is that Sam Johnson who led it and Jade and some of the other students were all about to organise a musical theatre event when the earthquakes happened and the reason they were all together was because they couldn't stage that show so they used their really great organisational and communication skills to start that student volunteer army and I think in sort of supporting and working alongside them they were, you know you didn't have to support them I often texting saying what do we do and I was thinking I have no idea I was just learning from thinking about how much young people can actually lead when they're given the opportunity and the support. Mm -hmm. Gosh, what a, an interesting time to arrive back uh, and challenging too as well, I can imagine. <laughs> and then, Bronwyn, how did you become to be involved in the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? That was really from my international work. So from conducting some of the studies with children around the world and then also from working at the University of East Anglia I was helping on some international teams and then I started working within the International Social Science Council and actually it was the French government from that work who nominated me to the IPCC and in that way it was also really interesting because I remember I was working in Japan when they phoned I was doing a project for some colleagues and I said, look, I'll have to talk to the New Zealand government and advisors. And they said in the way that the French do, oh, why would you do that? I said, because I'm a New Zealander, I better just let them know. And when I rang, the government officials said, oh, but we've already got our men. And I said, oh, well, the difficulty is that I've been nominated by France. And they said, yes, but we have the men that are coming from New Zealand. And I said, yes, I know, but France is also adding me onto that list. And they said, well, we can't pay for you. And I said, well, France can. <laughs> it was very awkward. And I did just hold my ground because I thought, no, actually, we need social science. We need politics. We, we definitely need the climate science. But 
we were at a point at that stage where we needed solutions that are also about working with people and communities. And so that was what the French Social Science Council members were keen to have. And I was very keen to support that. But I think, again, without that international or other network support, it would have been quite hard to break in. It's changed a lot, but I noticed that we still had no Māori authors who were senior leads in the New Zealand report this time round, which is extremely frustrating. So we've still got a long way to go. Mm, and interesting language as well. No, we've already got our men. Uh, but and, and as I understand it, it's still... Who were lovely men, I have to say. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about gender balance, it's never helpful to, you know, blame men or anything for the, for the challenges that are, that are there. It's about shifting and making a change in the system. But from what I understand, still a lot of the international work around climate is sort of majority men in terms of the research or the commentary or the the involvement um, as part of that. Yes, it is. um, I've ended up working uh, for the gender teams within the IPCC because it tends to be the global north and particularly now that we've had to be online for two years, the countries that have got better internet, um, who use English as their first language, are just more advantaged. And we're still struggling with getting the gender balance right, uh, just so that we get a diversity of thought and the and the and the richest kind of insights that we can get. So it, it's interesting that the problems are everywhere. Of just making sure that we keep open to new ideas, to new people, to new thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I like the way you talk about that kind of diversity of thought because actually having that broader range will bring a greater awareness of all the different challenges. Yeah, nice. Thinking about your work you do today, which is you know varied, what do you really love about your work, Bronwyn? I think at this stage in my career, there's two parts that I love. One, I'm very surprised that I love the teaching more. Like For a long time, it was, I've always liked teaching, but it's quite exhausting. But you do feel it's a privilege to be able to support the capacity of new leaders coming up. And particularly in politics, and we have a new degree in sustainability, social and environmental sustainability here at Canterbury. And you do, it is a privilege to be kind of working with new cohorts of of young leaders. And, And that's very satisfying and rewarding. I also do love the ability to learn from other countries and the kind of international networks and connections of just seeing how the the world is for other people and it's like a privilege of traveling even when you're not traveling is that you're learning how other people see and experience the world and thinking about solutions that come from that and it's funny you should say about the variety of ideas that come from diversity we don't often think about the fact that in most disasters it's women and children in particular that are by far the majority of the people that are impacted by the disaster or in the number of serious injuries or death and that's because of a whole lot of micro reasons all added together from whether or not people can read whether they've got access to a phone whether they've got access to transport the kind of clothing that they wear all of those little things add up to mean that if there is a major disaster women are still very vulnerable and the poor so I think I do find it rewarding to be able to work with a lot of people who are concerned about similar difficult issues which can be overwhelming when you're on your own but collectively 
it feels like we're not making any difference but as you said we've made such a difference with even the way in which we talk about climate in the last eight years it's become something that people feel that is happening they understand that it is real that it has a moral effect you know like is it fair what we're doing <laughs> it's not a technical conversation and it's not something that people are kind of questioning the science so much now it's that they're just anxious about it mm -hmm. and I can imagine that you would particularly see that anxiety in the young very much and I think one of the things is thinking about so how do we affect change in a way that's going to support young people who are growing up in a very different future from ours it's precarious economically socially and environmentally and it's going to be a very chaotic experience for them but there's a wonderful expression that Robert Bullard has he's a a black civil rights lawyer who works on environmental justice issues and he said you know tackling problems like climate change it's not a sprint and it's not even a marathon it's a relay marathon it's actually something we have to do over generations there's an enormous emphasis on how we don't have time we have to act fast which is true but it's taken us about 200 years to get into this mess it's going to take multiple generations to shift and so supporting children and young adults to be able to collaborate with others is enormously rewarding and thinking about the skills they'll need for problem solving in times of real chaos and repeated disasters is actually quite important. Mm, important but also scary I have to say as a mum of three children myself and thinking about the world in which they're going to grow up in. Yeah, super interesting. Roman, you know, no, no career is kind of easy and smooth sailing at, at all points and you've talked about some of those shifts uh, or pivots and, and things that you've had along the way. If you look back at your career to date, what have been some of the biggest challenges or toughest moments that you've had to face? Um, I think the toughest moment was getting promoted to professor. It had been an ongoing battle, it's an ongoing battle for many women in academia and then when it initially didn't happen and for a whole lot of reasons there's some, it's a classic, it actually, I was surprised that it didn't become an issue that I was personally feeling badly about. It became something where I just thought, actually, if this kind of treatment was happening to another colleague, I wouldn't accept it. And I can't continue to accept um, what's happening in the way that women are not being promoted in my university at the time. I can't accept it because it's not fair for the women coming after me. So I think the hardest thing was putting in an appeal, a very frank appeal against a, a set of decisions that I felt were unfair and being quite open about that. And, you know, it makes you very vulnerable. <laughs> and, but the satisfaction was affecting major change and actually now being able to use the role of a professor to push the door open for other people because universities are still so hierarchical and they're so old-fashioned in many ways. It's just being able to get more women and get more young people and get more non-traditional voices into decision-making is, is really satisfying. Mm, I can imagine. And I think the challenges that you probably felt in terms of that promotion process, they happen in many, very many other workplaces as well, and they're not simple challenges for you know women being able to, to find their way through and up. They're complex, they're complex challenges, but sometimes it takes somebody to, to kind of stand up and say, look, some, some, we've got to do this differently. 
Mm, and I think the thing with women is that we, it's often said, you know, we always prepare for the job <laughs> rather than take the risk about what we can do. But I think that means that you know when you are prepared. And so it, it is having the evidence to say, hang on, you know, can we have another look at this? That it, there are, I was just noticing that some colleagues were just appointed to professor internationally who are outstanding researchers and should have been made professor years ago, women. And I thought, mm, we've still got such a long way to go. Mm, we still do and I think at the same time also it's good sometimes to go and yet we've come so far so that sort of gives you hope that um, that change is, is happening but that doesn't doesn't stop certainly me anyway thinking I keep the foot on the gas in terms of trying to to create change as well well it's a bit the same with climate really isn't it <laughs> It's very daunting to look forward and then you think actually we've come a long way and every single action that we can do collectively, individually does actually make a difference. Mm. Mm. So true. And we've talked about some of the tougher times. If you look back at your career to date, what have been some of your proudest moments? I think when it was really at its peak, serving on the IPCC was really writing our 1.5 report, which was about what would happen if the world warms to 1.5 degrees warmer than it was back in the 1880s. At the time, it was a sort of an unpopular report. A lot of people felt, well, what's the point of doing that? Because we'll easily break through that. We're heading to at least a two degree warmer world, which we are, but it means so much to the Pacific if we're able to hold it at a lower temperature. And I think all of a sudden it changed the conversation because people started thinking about what does this mean if we actually that we're already seeing climate change now before that report came out that I don't think that the public had realised that quite so graphically. In fact I remember saying to a journalist well we're already seeing climate change now and he rang me back and said are you sure you wanted to say that and I said yes. <laughs> so and that was just in 2018 so it was also wonderful to work with a whole team of people particularly seeing how the small Pacific Islands really stood up on those issues and countries from Africa against the odds and I think the thing from a woman's point of view that's constantly challenging to me is that I realize constantly my own internal discrimination and kind of sexism that goes on in my own head because I'm constantly meeting amazing women who have done incredible things from very difficult backgrounds becoming astrophysicists from very poor small villages in developing countries and you just think how do you do that that is an enormous effort to have been able to achieve that and it's yeah constantly inspiring and a bit overwhelming to see what people achieve really mm, as you say sometimes overwhelming but but also inspiring to be able to to see women thrive against the odds mm. and I really enjoyed recently reading the Melinda Gates book around the moment of lift which is all, all about you know we empower women we lift up the world which I thought was just a, a sort of a slightly different take on some of the, the world's challenges very interesting and Roman, you know, you live a busy life mm -hmm. with, I can imagine, in terms of your international work, there's probably like middle of the night calls and yes. all sorts of things going on. You know, how do you find some kind of balance between your working life and, and your broader life? Well, I have to say that my husband is extremely good. I mean, he's very pragmatic and liking the environment and the outdoors is good because it kind of is a break and still loving drama and theatre is good. But 
the ridiculous thing that I do, which is just lovely, is that I belong to a miniatures club, which is like dolls' houses. And I think when you're working on really big projects, just doing this tiny thing where you make tiny little crafts, like tiny little chandeliers, ridiculous little chairs, tiny little things, with a whole bunch of mostly women who are just interested in, t in small crafts is so satisfying. There's no politics in it. We can't solve the big picture. We're just doing these tiny things. And I'm interested that a lot of the women that are in this club, uh, some of them are detectives, court reporters, intensive care nurses. And we've joked about it that I think, uh, and then a lot of people are also just people who love crafts as well, that it is just a an escape really where you just do something completely different and ephemeral and fun and yeah I've often raffle or auction little dolls houses for charities or children's charities because otherwise the house would be overrun with small stuff yeah it's just completely fun and completely non-demanding uh, with a very different group of women and I really like them Mm, and as you said, that kind of escapism, something that's very practical, hands-on, and takes you away from some of those big, problems, difficult to yeah. solve problems, difficult yes. to solve. Fish, um, just kind of focus on how do you make the world's smallest cake and yeah. make it look realistic. Um, <laughs> but I've, we were laughing that miniatures was very uncool, but during COVID it's become extremely trendy. Apparently it's one of the biggest sort of up-and-coming COVID lockdown crafts, and there's even a new channel four series like the great british bake-off there's this great british tiny designs competition program now so <laughs> we'd like to say we're ahead of the curve in the in the garden city miniatures club <laughs> absolutely ahead of the curve on climate change ahead of the curve on miniatures <laughs> definitely uh, and Roma, where do you see your career now heading into the future i've been thinking about that quite a bit lately there are two things i would like to do i would like to support my colleagues here at the university so maybe for a while but I also think how are we going to get climate conversations that cut across our political differences I'm very worried about that and how do we invest in long-term thinking so right now we're shaping up for a very intense and difficult election campaign next year it'll be focused around tax cuts and the cost of living and kind of how do we manage um, housing these are very short-term issues that are not going to help our big long-term investments we need to make for children and young people. So, And also the kind of increasing divides we've got between urban and farming communities. So I'm just trying to think about how we could set up some kind of commission for the future or some kind of organisation or way of thinking about running decisions past what's the effect for children and young people into the future and just trying to get a bit of long-term thinking in all our political parties, rather than what's going to win us this election. And this is really hard to do. But I think a lot of people in surprising urban and rural communities are anxious about the same thing. And I think one of the lovely things about New Zealand is that we're not as divided as, the, as America, for instance. So my family, probably like most families, spans political spectrums. And, uh, and it's like, how do we actually get some agreement on some broad principles that might help us make better decisions in the long term for our children. Mm, mm, that sounds like very worthy work and um, yeah, I look forward to seeing. It. Yes, uh, putting it from worthy to practical though is going to be hard. 
<laughs> Absolutely. But as you said, crossing those political divides and trying to bring people together around that long-term thinking. Uh, fascinating. Fascinating. I look forward to seeing where it, where it takes you. One last question, Bronwyn, I'd love to have for you is, you know, what career advice would you have for other women? I think having allies, like learning how to support other women. So you're not networking just for yourself, but in a way that is thinking about how to work for a bigger issue than yourself is really invaluable and probably when I look back on it at the moment it's been the unexpected networks like serving on a school board which was also a bilingual school board where our children were meant that I was connected to a lot of different communities and the practicalities of thinking about Tao Māori in a way that I probably wouldn't have been if I hadn't been involved with that community and that really opened up lots of other practical local community networks which have helped me understand the problems that people face uh, in living in cities facing climate change and in after the earthquakes and then those same kind of networks like the international networks of women and friendships of women become incredibly important at the difficult times and I think you just have to make sure though that you're giving back that they're not just transactional relationships I think that's a real problem with LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff is it's all just promotion and transactional but having deep friendships that you value over time and supporting each other is really a very precious thing and it's not always obvious how it's going to happen but it's you know just believing in something bigger than yourself and in supporting others with the things they believe in is very satisfying. Very satisfying, I can imagine. Wonderful advice. Well, thank you, Bronwyn, for sharing your career journey today and really fascinating to hear from, as you say, those kind of uh, initial trips out with your dad out into the floods in the high country um, through to your time overseas and, and bringing that, that international perspective and, and connectedness back here to Aotearoa. Fantastic to see you breaking various ceilings and along the way being an inspiration to other women, but also as you said kind of keeping that connectedness and support for others and lifting and ensuring a whole range of voices are heard too so thank you oh thanks very much for having me and it was lovely i really hope you enjoyed this episode of the female career podcast thank you so much for listening for more inspiring stories of women of aotearoa and their careers subscribe to the female career podcast via apple spotify google or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story you can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.